What's up, everyone? This is episode number 72 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right. I've got two main segments for you today. Uh, The first one actually involves a little bit of market speculation. You guys know that I typically don't do that here, but there was a post on the blowout forums this week that really impressed me. And this was a post where a collector detailed an experiment that he's doing, where among other things, he used Vegas odds, he used population reports, um, and you know several things to create a matrix for cards that he thinks could skyrocket in value over the next couple of months. Now, as we know, there are so many factors that go into card values. It's hard to tell if if this experiment will actually work, but once again, it's just that. It's an experiment, and he was very transparent in his intentions. So I appreciated the effort. Um, You know, I know a lot of thought went into it. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. I'll have more on that in just a moment. And then the second segment of the day, which I'm very excited about, is a follow-up to episode number two, where I talked about my quest for a signed 1972 73 Tops basketball set. This is a journey I started around 2011. And those of you that have listened to the early episodes know this wasn't as simple as just putting feelers out there and saying I'd like to buy these cards. There was a lot of jumping through hoops. And honestly, there was a point where I didn't think I was going to finish. However, I'm proud to say that this week, after nine years of grinding away at this thing, I finally finished it. You're going to want to stick around to find out how. There was a very um, fitting conclusion to the whole thing, and that will be segment number two. So uh, let's start off with this blowout post that I referenced earlier. I want to provide a little bit of a disclaimer here before I start because I, I think any form of predictive pricing should be taken with a grain of salt. And as we all know, one person or one group's predictions can be very damaging in the wrong hands even if the originator of that information took an appropriate and responsible approach. I've talked about the ripples of investment advice before. You guys are well aware of all that. But um, the market is continually evolving, and I appreciate different approaches still. So when I was on Blowout and I saw a thread titled, Card Prices, Vegas Odds, Pareto Principle, and Why You Can't Score Chicks on Tinder, Well, I knew it wasn't going to be a quick read. And this was from a user named TJ Force, and his real name is Tom, so I'm going to refer to him as Tom from here on out. I want to give a shout out to him because even if I don't agree with everything that he posts, I know it's going to be something that makes me think and challenges me. Even if it's something where I just say, you know, I think a a lot about it and just say, no, I don't agree with that. You know, it's going to at least challenge me. What do I think... Um, do these positions of mine, do they ever move? Do they always stay the same? You know, what is my philosophy on collecting, right? So anything that challenges me to really do that um, in a good way makes for quality content, and I appreciate the effort that went into it. Um, I also want to point out that I've talked to Tom some this week, and, you know, I clarified with him, And he wanted me to clarify with you, the main point of this thread was not to pump cards or even specific players. 
It was more about testing an approach for which players would benefit the most from an NBA Finals run. Simply put, it's an experiment. All right, um, I think that anyone that shines in the finals is going to see their prices go up. And, um, you know, even in football, we saw this a little bit with Mahomes. The closer he got to the Super Bowl, the more his prices went up. Well, once he actually won one, there wasn't a, a huge boost in prices afterward. They had already gone up so much. So some people think we could see the same thing with Giannis and LeBron. And a lot of buyers and sellers have already built a potential finals run into their pricing. You know, I, was at, I was at a show this past weekend. And I saw that firsthand. Um, you know, a lot of people are just accepting that that's the way that things are going to be. Because the thinking is, you know, these guys, they won't see their card prices multiply by three or four times with a finals run. Um, but with an experiment like this, like the one that Tom's doing here, he's thinking... You know, there might be some other players out there that could be had for a fraction of the cost that would see very large jumps. Okay, so let's jump into this thread here. Um, Tom starts this thing off by explaining the Pareto principle, which some of you might know as the 80-20 rule. And here are some real quick examples of the 80-20 rule that we've seen play out in real life, be it economy or sports or culture. Um, here we go. So 83% of the world's money is controlled by 20% of its population. And that was a, a number from 1989. Um, 85% of wins in baseball are accumulated by the top 15% of its players. And that's you know based off of a, a wins above replacement stat that, that's very popular in, in baseball right now. Um, and then 80% of women on Tinder match with the top 20% of men, which is where the grabber of this thread title comes into play. I'm sure that got uh, the attention of, of quite a few people. But uh, Tom goes on to write after he gives us these examples, he says, so why am I talking economic theories in a sports card forum? It's a good question. He said, well, in addition to having studied this back in the day in school, it's pretty apparent to me that this rule applies to sports cards as well. Not only that, but I practice it in planning out my collection goals. I want to see where this thought process takes me by doing an exercise that takes into consideration current prices of mainstream cards, the PSA population of those cards, and the Vegas odds of players getting to the NBA Finals in an attempt to figure out what cards have the most to gain and the most to lose this bubble season. Um, then he moves on to his prediction. He says, several players have a chance to see their card values increase by two times, three times, or four times over today's already inflated prices. But remember, this is the 80-20 rule. That's what he opened with, right? So he also adds that several players have a chance to see their card values decrease by maybe 25%, 40%, or 60% from today's already inflated prices. So there are some players then that are not all going to see this rapid movement, uh, or at least movement upward. Um, so what was the methodology here? So Tom said that he started with the premise that whatever star players win their conference and make the NBA Finals, that they should see an increase in their um, card prices, which, you know, that's perfectly reasonable. There's a track record of that already. So... Uh, operating on that assumption, he then took the Vegas odds 
for each conference championship and identified about 25 guys on those teams, right, that quote-unquote matter on the hobby right now. So um, he eliminated players on teams with odds that were worse than 14 to 1. So what I like here is he's not trying to just grab random, you know, bench or random rotation players from good teams and saying, well, you know, they should see a, a boost too. He's looking for established players. A lot of these are guys that aren't necessarily going to be hurt by a loss either, but a, a win could really, really boost their stuff. So um, after all of that, he was left with the following 14 players, and this is in no particular order. He's got Giannis, Tatum, Siakam, Ben Simmons, Embiid, Jimmy Butler, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Kawhi, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Jokic, Luka, and Donovan Mitchell. Okay, so you know it's no surprise that those guys are up there, right? Well, in order to take this to the next step then, um, he created a matrix that focused on three factors. So his x-axis is the populate the PSA 10 population of each player's flagship rookie. So for the older players, that would be Topps Chrome. For the more current players, 2012 and beyond, um, that would be Prism. Um, and then his y-axis was the current price of each card. And then finally, each player's probability of winning the conference is denoted by color, with green being the best and red being the worst. You can see, you know, I know I'm, I'm describing something that's visual to you guys here as best as I can, but you can see all of this on the blowout thread. He probably put it on his social media. If he didn't, um, I'll see if I can get it on there somehow. But I want to try and direct you guys to this information so you can see it and just examine this approach and, you know, see what you think of it. Now, um, I'm not much of a data guy in this way. I process things a little different in the hobby. But when I first looked at this matrix, and, and hopefully when you look at it as well, you'll notice that the Luka and the LeBron placements really stick out because they're just so far outside. They're outliers, right? In one way or the other. LeBron, because his PSA 10 Chrome prices are already so high, and Luka, because his PSA 10 population is so high. So they're they're on different parts of that matrix, but they're high for one reason or, or other. So um, Tom noticed the same thing and he adjusted accordingly and he took them out. He noted that they probably wouldn't see major multipliers with a win. So um, after taking these out, that leaves us with a, a dozen players. And Tom said here that you know we can start to make sense of where the values are in comparison to odds and population counts. So he whittles the list down, and I'm going to read a few paragraphs here so we can hopefully understand his reasoning. He said, I'm looking for lower-priced cards with relatively lower pops and higher chances to win a title. Starting with price, Giannis and Harden are out. And he explains that a little bit. But you guys can figure that out, right? You guys that are paying attention to the market. Um, he continues, Kawhi and AD seem pretty reasonably priced in this scenario, both high probability of making the finals, reasonable population, and high prices. Uh, not bad buys, but it would be harder for them to see a three or four times return. Um, so you guys have to remember, that's the goal here. He wants to find cards that will make quick, high jumps. Kawhi has already had multiple jumps. He's already accomplished quite a bit. There's also that anticipation. People are already factoring in another deep run for him. 
Um, and same thing with Anthony Davis. It was very predictable when he joined the Lakers. Okay, they're probably going to make a title run. It's the LeBron effect, right? So uh, a lot of that pricing is already locked in for those two players. Um, so then going down the rung here, he said Jokic and Mitchell are eliminated, mainly because their odds are too low. And in Mitchell's case, the population is too high. Tatum just has too big of a population. I think there are better options based on the odds. Okay, so he's eliminated all of those guys. And he said, and that leaves us with five players or five cards, which, as you can see, is the 20%. So that's where this Pareto principle comes into play, this 80-20 rule. Um, I'm going to list those for you in just a moment, just so you can see you know, what his conclusions were. But remember, Tom is not telling you to buy these cards. He's not guaranteeing that they will jump. I'm not telling you to buy these. Uh, I'm more interested in the methodology here and seeing if it actually works. Uh, and then even if it works this year, it doesn't mean it will work next year necessarily. Um, this, this hobby is always evolving and changing. Um, as always, I want you to make your own buying decisions. Okay, so here are his five cards. The first one is Russell Westbrook's 2008 Topps Chrome PSA 10. He said the price of $850 isn't cheap, but the low population gives it tremendous upside. His second card is uh, Pascal Siakam 2016 Prism PSA 10. And he said, I am skeptical that Siakam can be a star, but with a ridiculously low pop of 160 versus Vegas odds of 7 to 1 that he gets to the finals, there won't be enough of these cards to go around in its current price of $740 if it gets there. Okay. Um, the next card that he's talking about here is actually um, is a card that in raw or whatever grade has been going up lately is Jimmy Butler's 2010 Prism PSA 10. And he said another low pop play here, only 230 PSA 10 copies exist and the Heat have a one in nine chance of winning the East. Um, card number, let's see where we're at here. One, two, three. Card number four, which is Ben Simmons 2016 Prism PSA 10. He said this is a big, big time price play here. The card can be had for $380 at the moment. Add to the fact that he's the youngest player left on the list. There is a major upside here in the one in nine event Philly makes the finals. And then finally, um, he's got Joel Embiid on here, the 2014 Prism PSA 10. He said this is another big price play. He's one of the lowest price guys on the list at only 275, but an Eastern Conference Finals title makes this price look like a bargain if it happens. Okay, so all interesting picks. Um, you know, we've seen some news for these guys throughout the week as well. We saw Ben Simmons was moved to power forward. Um, although I don't know if that will really look a whole lot different in Philly's offense, but we'll see. Um, but anyway, Tom closed his post with a couple of notes and caveats, so I want to respect that and cite those here as well, because I want to try and present all of the information with as much context as I possibly can. So he said, quote, um, I don't think any of the guys I listed here are bad picks. Many more factors than what I have examined go into determining who is a good investment. Take that into consideration. He also said, this is meant to be a short-term view centered around value spikes related to making the finals. If you were investing for the long-term, different criteria would be involved. Um, he also lets us know, quote, 
I have stock in quite a few of these guys, mainly LeBron, Luka, Simmons, AD, Westbrook, Tatum, and Mitchell. I've recently bought more high-end LeBron and Simmons, partially based on this research. And then finally, he said, this is all for fun, so if you like it, I'm glad. If not, please be respectful when discussing. So anyway, um, I'm just passing that along to you guys this week. That's something I, I read. I thought it was a fun read. Um, even though I read large parts of it verbatim, I encourage you to check out the thread itself. There's a lot more detail there. There are You can see the each matrix. Um, if you're registered on Blowout and you have some feedback or some thoughts on this, feel free to leave it there. You know, I think the potential for more long-term conversation, or I'm sorry, more long-form conversation, I should say, is one of the strengths of a place like Blowout. And speaking of Blowout, if you spent any time there this week, you might have read about the topic of my second segment today, which is a big project that I've been working on. Um, in fact, I've talked about it several times on this show. For those of you that haven't been here from the start or those of you that need a refresher, over the last nine years, I have been trying to get all 264 cards from the 1972-73 top set signed. And I chronicled this journey all the way back in episode two. So that was all the way at the start, one of the very first things I talked about. If you haven't listened to that one, you know, make sure add it to your download queue. Go ahead and listen to that after you're done with this one. I encourage you to do that. Um, but I labeled this whole thing as a journey because it truly was. And to be honest, I really didn't think I was going to finish it. Um, for a lot of these cards, it wasn't as simple as just searching for them on eBay and, or, and purchasing them. Um, I had to find people on Facebook. I emailed children of players to see if their parents were still alive. I learned how to send a, a letter internationally. I sent cards to Italy. I bought a bottle of bathroom cleaner from a player's Amway store so he would sign his card. The list goes on. I won't go through all of that here. I, I talked about some of it already, but... Um, when I recorded episode two, I had four cards left, which doesn't sound like a lot, but um, each one of the four was going to be difficult for a variety of reasons. And the, the first one of these was Flynn Robinson. And Flynn is a, is a former Laker that died in 2013. So he had a lot of time to sign, but um, there weren't a lot of recorded successes at his address as far as through the mail. And, and not a lot of people were asking him to sign these cards in the first place. So when you're going to find one, it might not be highly desirable, but it also might not be easy to find. And, um, you know, that's a similar case with the, the next player, which is Jimmy Walker. And Jimmy Walker is, is Jalen Rose's father, although they never got a chance to meet. But... He died in 2007. So once again, he had a lot of time to sign, but that doesn't mean that he was signing these cards. Um, the third one I needed was Roger Brown, which he's you know a Hall of Fame Pacers player. He died in 1997. Uh, a lot of people that have Roger Brown autographs hold on to them pretty tight. And then um, the final one is Willie Sojourner. And Willie took a coaching job in Italy in the early to mid 2000s and he died in a car crash there in 2005 so you know he's he had moved around some he had been kind of elusive when he was in the states you know not a lot of people were searching for him to begin with so there's just a lot of factors coming together here that were going to make this whole thing difficult 
Well, despite the obstacles in place, I had a lot of time and money invested in this set. So I, I wasn't going to stop trying. It doesn't mean that every single day I was, you know, searching for it, but, um, you know, I tried to pick up the search here and there. So after I recorded episode number two, my search kind of went dead for a little while um, until September of 2019 when um, a, a you know a established eBay seller named BBC Exchange 3 posted a bunch of raw signed 1972 cards, um, including Flynn Robinson, which was one that I needed. And you know, the, the batch of cards looked good to me. That's how I, I try and tell, you know, you can see collections. If the majority of the collection looks good, that, that makes you feel a lot better about what you're buying. So this signature looked good and I pulled the trigger. I had someone send it to PSA for me to get a little extra peace of mind and it came back authentic. So I needed four. Now there's one down and now there's three to go. That was in September of 2019. Well, come January... The same account listed assigned Roger Brown, but this one was already slabbed. And my guess is that when they bought this collection, they sent some of the more valuable ones to PSA from the get-go, and they were just now coming back in. Um, at the same time, you know, this this wasn't a cheap card necessarily, or at least not cheap according to my standards. Um, but I happened to be coaching the academic team at school and was due for a little bonus shortly after that. So I, I told Mrs. Wax Museum, I said, look, I really need this card. I'm spending my stipend before I get it. And, you know, even if the money wasn't on the way, I would have moved some stuff for it. One major lesson that I've learned from this set is to, is to get a rare card when you see it. You know, don't let people take advantage of you necessarily, but if things are reasonable, just get it when you see it. Okay. Um, all right. So that two down and two to go. That was in January. Well, once I received that card in the mail, I, I made a pretty detailed update post on the blowout forums in hopes of somehow finding the last two that I needed. And almost immediately after, a raw Jimmy Walker was listed on eBay. Now, I was a little worried that maybe someone had seen my post and was trying to take advantage of me. I, I was probably being a little paranoid, but... Um, I did some comparisons. The signature looked good, but I wanted to dig around a little bit more. So I sent the seller a message just to say, hey, you know, where did you get this from? And um, it was interesting. He said he got the card from the estate of Dale Schluter. Dale Schluter was a, a former NBA player who's actually also in the 1972-73 top set. He said, Dale was my best friend for over 40 years. No paperwork. He just got me whatever was desired along the way, and after he passed, I lost interest in basketball and sold mine in the balance of what we had left over together. Well, um, this particular seller was located in Oregon, and I knew Dale had played for the Blazers, so it all lined up. And I, I thought it was pretty cool that the card had that sort of a story behind it, so I put in a, a pretty hefty bid and ended up winning it for $10, so... You know, to me, that card was worth a lot more than ten dollars. Um, you know, probably no one else even saw it or bothered to bid on it. Nobody else really wanted it. It's just funny how set collecting kind of alters your perspective. So that was the third out of the fourth that I needed. So that left me with one to go, and it was Willie Sojourner. And 
my chase went cold for the next six months. And during this time, I'd ask people, I'd say, hey, you know, what do you think is the final card that I need to finish this set? And most people would go with big names of guys that had already passed away, like Wilt Chamberlain or Pete Maravich. And while their cards weren't cheap, the truth of the matter is those guys signed a lot of stuff. And a lot of people were, were trying to get their stuff signed too. So the the supply and the demand is, is there for the most part. So it wasn't Wilt or Pete that I needed. Like I said, it was Willie Sojourner. And as I mentioned earlier, he died in a car crash in Italy in 2005. So he had plenty of years to sign, but I had never seen a signed copy. You know, there wasn't really a demand for them. And a lot of collectors weren't getting cards signed in the 70s. Well, except for my new friend, Tim, who I met on Twitter on June 27th. And then you guys heard from him on episode 70 of this show. And as I mentioned in that episode, I was scrolling my Twitter feed one day and the Dropping Dimes Foundation retweeted one of his Today's Treasure posts where he showed something off from his 50-year collection. Um, As I looked through his collection, or at least the the pieces that he had posted, I thought there was a chance that he at least knew where a signed Willie Sojourner card was, even if he didn't have one himself. So I shot him a message. Um, I explained my quest and I said, look... If you ever see one signed, please let me know. And he responded with a picture of that card signed and the following message. He said, Kyle, glad I discovered you. I listened to your 72 Quest podcast. I just sold my signed Wilt from that set in the last SCP auction. I think this is your lucky day. I'm 95% sure I got Willie on this after a Nets at Colonel's game in Cincinnati. We need to talk one way or another. Well... In talk, we did. We talked about our autograph adventures. We talked about mutual friends in the hobby. Uh, you know, that that was all over an hour and a half. Uh, that was before he even came on the show. So I had him here on the show. We talked for another couple hours just a few days later. Uh, and Tim was very, as you can imagine, if you listen to that show, he was very easy to work with. Um, and then, you know, we tried something that I had never done before. So... Um, we knew that we wanted to work out a trade. He said, well, send me some pictures. I said, man, I've got too much stuff for pictures. I would be sending you pictures nonstop. So um, I set up the camera and I said, look, I'm going to, I set up the camera. I got up my box of vintage autographs and I said, I'm just going to show every card quickly on camera. So I went through all of them and it was still a, it was a six minute video me just going through cards pretty much nonstop. Well, after talking with him a couple of times, you know, I already trusted him and I felt like neither one of us was going to try and one up the other person. So um, he texted me back after he watched it and he said, here are five cards that I like in no particular order. And uh, I just said, well, how about all five of them? And he ended up adding a second card for me as well. But I was beyond thrilled because obviously this, you know, this was the last card I needed. It was worth a lot to me. Um, As part of the trade, I also asked him to draft up a note talking about the night he got the card signed. Because, you know, I would have been relieved to buy the card on eBay. But to trade for it and to make a new friend with the guy who actually got it signed... 
that was just so cool to me and it meant so much more. So I want to read that note for you real quick before I sign off. Um, it said, Kyle, the Willie Sojourner card got signed December 8th, 1973 at the University of Cincinnati Armory Fieldhouse. That season, the ABA Kentucky Colonels played about 10 games in Cincinnati, including against the New York Nets. Willie was on the Nets at that time, along with Julius Irving. I checked the box score from that game, and Sojourner scored two points. Dr. J had 27 in the Nets' win. Best regards, Tim. So, um, you know, that was it. That was the last card that I needed. And it, it hasn't quite settled in yet that I'm finally done and just kind of the way it all wrapped up um, you know several weeks ago I, I I never even thought I was close to finding that last card and it just just a series of coincidences and questions ended up landing me that card uh, and a friendship in the process so um, you know I, I'm still going to work slowly on upgrades but this thing is finally done and I've met so many good people and I've captured so many good memories along the way. And I, I want to extend a big thank you, not just to Tim, but to anyone that helped me in any way. Because I know there are a few of you that are listening that have either, you know, pointed out cards or looked for cards or, or sold me cards or traded cards. Uh, thank you. And um, I've also had some people ask me what the next project is. Uh, the, the truth of the matter, I have... So many cards that I'm working to acquire right now, I just can't start any new projects. Uh, I don't regret this one one bit. You know, like I said, I had a blast, but now that I've done it once, I can't see myself trying it again. But who knows? I might get that itch again someday. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, thanks for tuning in as always. Just like I outlined in the first segment, some of you might be working on playoff purchasing experiments of your own. Feel free to share those with me throughout the week. Or maybe some of you are working on a, a project similar to my 1972 chase. Let me know. You can find me on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.